0: welcome to the 321 biz development podcast my name is clarence rick napier ceo 321 biz dev llc located in sacramento county california 321 biz dev llc is a business development and sales industry think tank our business is people our product is sales performance 321 is the only company with sales systems for white collar professionals who did not have access to affordable sales and business development training in college or through certification programs. 321 is the company to call if you or your sales team want to master the following four main sales functions. Contacting, prospecting, appointment setting, and closing. 321 supports CPAs, attorneys, insurance brokers, real estate brokers, dentists, cosmetic surgeons and real estate investors. In addition, 321 features the most talented business professionals on our podcast from North America and from around the world. 321 BizDev services are available worldwide where the English language is spoken. Our website is 321BizDev.com powered by PsychMarket.com This podcast is powered by Jive communications at jive.com we can be reached toll free in the u.s and canada at 833-321-3212 we hope you enjoy today's podcast hello 321 biz development podcast listeners the title of this podcast is when your day of epiphany arrives will you respond This podcast focuses on my walk with sales performance and how I got to this point. An epiphany can happen in any aspect of your life. What's important about an epiphany is will you recognize it and will you take action when you identify possibly the only thing in your life that might have the most meaning ever. Now, here's the definition of epiphany from Wikipedia which I think they give a pretty good definition. Wikipedia's definition is, an epiphany from the ancient Greek, epiphania is a manifestation or striking appearance, is an experience of a sudden and striking realization. Generally, the term is used to describe scientific breakthrough, religious or philosophical discoveries But it can apply in any situation in which an enlightening realization allows a problem or situation to be understood from a new and deeper perspective. Epiphanies are studied by psychologists and other scholars, particularly those attempting to study the process of innovation. Epiphanies are relatively rare occurrences and generally follow a process of significant thought about a problem often they are triggered by a new and key piece of information but importantly a depth of prior knowledge is required to allow the leap of understanding famous epiphanies include archimedes discovery of a method to determine the density of an object and isaac newton's realization that that a falling apple and the orbiting moon are both pulled by the same force. So that's Wikipedia's definition. Now over the next few minutes, let me walk you through some exciting and some not so exciting times in my life. So let's start by attending Catholic school as I was one of three black males in a Tampa Catholic school with 600 students. And the other two black males were my first cousins. So that was interesting growing up And attending a school where you and your cousins were the only blacks in the school. So what that taught me at, you know, six and seven years old was there's really not a lot of problems dealing with race when kids are younger. You know, as they get older, some things are learned by others. And I'm not saying that, uh, you know, black Black kids didn't learn anything about racism, or maybe even, um, you know, put out some racist stuff. And I'm not saying that that the, the white kids didn't put out any racism. But the point was, growing up, where you're the one of three black young males in the class, taught me something. And what it taught me was I can perform. Because you see, at six and seven years old. All the way up to the sixth grade, I was one of the top performers at the private Catholic school. So it taught me young when I when I was very young, that um, performance is not necessarily um, categorized by a certain race. Anybody can perform regardless of your race if you put the effort into it. So the, the next item I need to tell you, this is not good news, but I am a son Of a mother who was a drug addict and I'm a son of a father who was a big drug dealer in Florida and like I said I'm not talking about some guy walking around in jeans and with a car and a few hundred dollars in his pocket my father was a big drug dealer in Florida big enough where he wore suits all the time and he had boys and we're not talking about you know people that were like 21 years old you know, my father was in his 30s as a as a as a big drug dealer. So, the experiences of growing up with a drug addict mother and a father who's well known in a city as being a drug dealer taught me a lot of things about being tough, about how to, um, you know, take criticism when you when your friends know that your mother's a drug dealer. And your friends know that your father's not doing something he should be doing uh that's really destroying the community so i i grew up with a lot of these things that made me uh, become very mature at the age of 12 through 16. and unfortunately i lost my mother at the age of 16 uh, because she died as a result of drug use and um, you know i ended up you know living with my my uncle who was a military veteran now the next thing i need to tell you about and all these things built up to this epiphany that i had when i was older so working as as a restaurant employee uh, at the age of uh, 15 years old right about the time my mother passed away i worked for a jewish restaurant owner who gave me my first job my first real opportunity and provided some great motivation this guy named paul he saw that I was such a hard worker and I had every, uh, you know, reason to be a hard worker, knowing that my mom was, was passing away and, and dying. And I was kind of like on my own, even though I was living with the, with an uncle. This Jewish guy, restaurant owner, he paid me when I was 17 years old, $400 a week. Now, for a 17, 18 year old, still in high school, he was paying me something the equivalent Of today's dollars of like a thousand dollars a week okay so $400 a week when I was 17 years old with no bills no responsibility is similar to making about a thousand dollars a week in 2019 and because I was a hard worker he promoted me fast and he let me run a night shift on a Friday and Saturday night at the restaurant as a 17 and 18 year old assistant manager. So I wanna thank Paul, he's probably passed away by now, but I wanna thank him for that opportunity. So the next step, and this is a part that's kind of like not so good, I'll tell you what, I was riding around in my city and I had a drink and uh, I ran a red light on a busy intersection. Thank goodness I didn't get hit by another car, but a cop pulled me over. To make a long story short, the cop said, Rick, you ran a red light, I'm not gonna give you a ticket. And by the way, we know who your father is, okay? So when the police officer said, we know who your father is, seven days later, I joined the military. I don't have time to get into the details of that subject, but I knew based on growing up as a son of a drug dealer, that meant I had to get out of town. So I joined the military seven days later. I was on a plane blind to boot camp seven days after this incident and passing all of the, the military entrance exams and, and physicals. So being in the military, okay, it's another you know, I had a tough job in the military, very, very stressful. Uh, being in different locations, doing different things. And You know, so by the time I was in my early 20s, I figured out that stress was something that I could I could handle growing up as a kid, son of a drug dealer, seeing your mom being a drug addict, you know, working in a fast paced restaurant in a in a upscale part of the city I grew up in was mostly, uh, you know, white patrons and, you know, working as a black assistant manager in a southern city where most of the patrons were were white and at that time you know I'm, I'm not sure what race relations were like but it didn't bother me i didn't care i didn't ask all i knew was that i had to do a job so being in the military doing this tough job you know i i did that job for you know six years you know as an active duty person and then another few years as a, a reservist so by the time it was it was time for me to leave the military i had to find a civilian job while I was attending to college. So I didn't even know what a resume was. So I went to the the Veterans Center and the, uh, the 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 person behind the counter said, Rick, you need to complete a resume. And I said, What's a resume? See, when you're in the military, there are so many things that you don't know about while you're serving in the military. So when I got out I didn't know what they what a what a resume was. So the Uh, The veterans rep helped me complete a resume. So I went to my first job. It was a night shift job in Sacramento. And I met with a a manager who hired me right on the spot after interviewing me for about 20 minutes. And she made me a lead shift at this health insurance company. And uh, so fast forward with that. I was I was working this shift for about a year. It was 4 p.m. to midnight. And the CEO of Sacramento's first Fortune 500 company came by to tour the facility with the HR manager. And the the CEO thought things were going pretty well. So the CEO said, you know, Miwa, that was the HR person's name. He said, Miwa, who's the night supervisor? And Miwa said, well, we we don't have one right now, but we have Rick, he's the sort of the lead at night. He's running the show at night by himself. So the CEO of Sacramento's first Fortune, Fortune 500 company said, Miwa, let's make Rick the supervisor immediately. So I went from the wage I was earning to an increase of six dollars per hour overnight. And so that just that was just great because this guy, you know, the CEO, his name was Dan. He said, man, this thing is running smooth. So that was my first civilian job, and I ended up blazing the corporate trail at a Fortune 500 company that started in Sacramento but was merged with another company, and now the headquarters was in Los Angeles. And and in that corporate journey, I dealt with a lot of corporate infighting and backstabbing and skirmishes. Uh, in, in, this, in these a uh, lot of these management jobs. And, and what it was like, it wasn't so much people hated me, it was just that was the, the culture of cor- corporate America. There was always someone looking to uh, defeat someone else because maybe that person was trying to get the next position above you or maybe they didn't want me to get the next position above them. So it was a constant battle. And I kid you not, it was almost like being in combat again where you went to work and you never knew what to expect. So that those experiences in corporate America, at least in the operation side, and those things that happened on the operation side taught me a lot of things about dealing with stress, about dealing, dealing with people, about dealing with deadlines, about dealing with pressure. So my break, my first break in sales came as I was functioning and working alongside the corporate sales team. And my job was to finish the work that the sales department did. Now our sales department um, prospected and did sales and marketing to some of the largest companies in California. The corporate sales department marketed to some of the largest companies in California. Those companies include Hewlett Packard, Cal Berkeley, that's University of California, Berkeley, the Screen Actors Guild, utility companies, uh, county municipalities where where we had to provide health insurance to the to county employees and state employees, state of California employees. And so my job was to finish the work that the sales department had to do. So the sales department would go out and do their dog and pony show and right before the contract was signed, or, As the contract was signed, they would say, Rick, come in and talk to the benefit officers, come in and talk to the executive uh, leadership teams to explain how for the first 60 days, everything was going to go smooth. So what happened when new companies came on board with this health insurance company, their employees and, and the minimum size employee employer group that we handled was 5,000 employees or greater. So within those first 60 days, everything had to go smooth with this employer. So my job was to make sure that there were not many customer issues. There were not any uh, contract issues where employees would go in to get their health care and something would go wrong. So my job was to minimize that. So the corporate sales team would call me in, you know, at these big meetings and say, okay, now it's time for Rick to explain what he does in account services. So I would, so I I used to always say to myself, man, these, these guys and ladies and sales, they, how do they do what they do? I was mesmerized. I was, you know, impressed with the fact that they can go out and bring in business that sometimes paid us a minimum of $50,000 per month up to you know $600,000 per month. So I was very impressed, mesmerized and just you know I looked at these people as being like sales gods and sales goddesses. So my first break and sales came when I saw an account executive position posted in our break room. So instead of completing all this paperwork for this job, I called the vice president of sales. Her name was Michelle. Michelle was a Japanese American lady and she was sharp. She was the sharpest person I've ever met in corporate sales across many different companies that I knew about. So I called Michelle and I said, Michelle, my name is Rick. You may not know me, but I, I tag along with the sales department to do the account services uh, portion. She goes, yeah, I think I know who you are. You know, you do a, you do a pretty good job. And I said, Michelle, I'm interested in working as an account executive, a sales executive in sales. And she said, Rick, really? And you picked up the phone to call and to tell me that? I said, yes. She said, Rick, can you come over to our office, which is about 30 miles away, and let's have lunch? So I said, sure. So I went to Michelle's office, nice office, about the size of a 1,000 square foot, you know, apartment. And we sat and had lunch. She brought in some gourmet sandwiches and soup. And she said, Rick, I am so impressed that you picked up the phone to call me about this position. And so to make a long story short, she hired me within the next 60 days. And 30 days after hire, I was in this formal sales training class that uh, was sponsored by Miller Hyman. Miller Hyman is a is the premier sales training uh, school for corporate executives. It's the same type of school uh, that maybe Deloitte people attend or Ernst and Young type of people that that attend this this sales training class. It was ten thousand dollars. It was an eight day class. It was Monday through Saturday. You got Sunday off and you finished on Monday. And Tuesday now what I learned about this sales training class and again this is part of this epiphany that I'm that I'm I'm building up that occurred you know like six seven years ago like in 2013 I noticed that no conversation in the sales training class was about a product it was all about how to deal with people how to deal with layers of management how to listen how to uh, prospect in a in a in a sense? How to you know have like some structure? How to use sales systems? And so that's why I always tell people today, and even the, even though that was like less than 20 years ago, that I attended this class in corporate America, I try to tell salespeople that selling is not about a product. It's not. It's never been about a product and it never will be about a product. Also, one of the things I must mention before I move on to independent sales is that at this corporate level, there's about 25, maybe 30,000 employees at that time. And in management, including sales operations, IT, customer service, there were only eight African-Americans out of 30,000 people. So again, I say that not to just point out that fact that there were only eight uh, people in middle to executive uh, leadership and management positions. I'm saying that because, you know, I made it, you know, I made it, I I broke that ceiling that everyone talks about. And I gotta be honest with you, it wasn't that hard for me to break that ceiling. And again, I think it goes back to my childhood, my teen years, Uh, It goes back to the restaurant work. It goes back to, uh, you know, having a stressful job in the military and just, you know, always going for it. So, you know, I I left corporate America about 20 years ago and I entered the independent sales industry, which included mortgages, uh, insurance sales. And, you know, I what I the the first thing I, I figured out or learned was that there's no, a lot of the independent sales organizations, insurance, mortgages, real estate, they don't have any sales systems. They don't. And at first it wasn't a big deal because here in California, when I started working in independent sales, California California's economy was booming. I mean, it was because of the inflated real estate market where the loans were so easy to get things were booming. Money was flowing like honey. So it wasn't hard to make a sale because everybody had money. You know, this real estate boom had taken off. It was easy to sell a house. It was easy to find a person that wanted to refi or needed a a purchase loan. It was easy to sell anything in California because of that fake economy that was going on. So I said to myself, okay, well, I want to work with a reputable company. So I got this interview with this high-end prestigious white-collar financial services firm down in San Jose, California right at the southern end of Silicon Valley and you know it was something weird because they sold to wealthy people and it was the first time that I was outside of corporate America now on my own as a financial services rep Working for an independent company, there were there was no salary, uh, there were no benefits. It was just me, you know, making the money that I needed to make. But one weird thing hit me. I felt this anxiety about being in sales for the very first time. Again, I was no longer in corporate America, but I felt this anxiety and the type of people that I was going to sell to, I was going to sell products where they were paying like $1,000 a month, $2,000 a month, rolling over you know, $200,000 on one insurance type contract. And it was primarily working with all white people. And it was the first time that I felt that perhaps being black may have been a, um, that being black may have been a disadvantage. Because at that time, San Jose was not a large, it wasn't a place where a lot of black people live. And again, that thought had never ever crossed my mind, ever, when I was in corporate America, when I was in the military, when I was working in a predominantly white uh, community at a four-star restaurant as a assistant manager at age 17, 18. That thought never crossed my mind. But I, but I started getting this, this anxiety about being in sales. And I'm not saying it was about being black and selling to whites. It was just an anxiety and I was intimidated and I was afraid to meet with with wealthy people. So I understand how a lot of salespeople feel today when they're meeting with people. I understand the anxiety triggers that that go through people's minds when they're in sales. But when I look back at this anxiety, I know what it was. I know now what that anxiety was. And that anxiety was not the fact that I, that I thought I was not good enough to sell to white people or not good enough to sell uh, you know, high-end products because I had did that before in corporate America. My biggest account in corporate America was an account that I prospected, I set the appointment and although I was not skilled enough to talk about the details of health insurance to a large employer that had 12,000 employees. It was in Ventura County. It was the Ventura County employer group. This was the employer that hired all the county workers who worked in Ventura, California. And I was a person that stopped by the office. I was the one that reached out to the benefit officer. I was the one that got the call to meet. So, <laughs> was that was an account that paid the health insurance company two hundred and twenty five thousand dollars per month or or three million dollars a year and to this day i was the youngest person in sales with the least amount of experience in sales with the shortest time in the sales department that closed the largest transaction so Back to this anxiety thing, it wasn't the fact that I was meeting with white people, it wasn't the fact that I was working with these this prestigious firm that had this, I mean, this firm had this, this uh, air or this type of aura of being like super upper-class, wealthy financial services firm. But none of that was was the reason. What it was, they didn't teach people how to sell. That's what it was. See, I figured out looking back that every job that I've ever had, every job always had some type of system. The restaurant had a system because I helped create it. The military obviously has a system. The military has the best system of doing something than any other organization, you know, in the United States or maybe even the world. And then in corporate America, we had a system. But in independent sales, there was no system. And that's what it was. So if this prestigious financial services firm would have sat down and said, here's our system to to market and sell these products that we're asking people to pay five hundred, a thousand, you know, two thousand dollars a month, half a million dollar rollover. I would have been fine, but I was intimidated by about that. So it wasn't me. It was the company but the company didn't know it because they didn't have a system. And it was likely that the owners didn't know how to sell. Now they knew how to write the the applications, they knew how to get the money, they knew how to explain how the insurance products worked, but they did not know how to prepare a salesperson to be effective. And this scenario with this high-end financial services firm in San Jose, California, This situation continued with seven other companies, independent mortgage companies, uh, insurance companies and real estate companies who did not have uh, sales training and did not offer sales training to their reps. And again, it wasn't me. Now that I figured out what what the problem was, it was these companies. And I remember passing my real estate exam and the first company that I went to work for was Keller Williams. I was only there for three days and I'll tell you why. I was never a person afraid to prospect people. So before I was uh, before I got my real estate license, I was studying at different places and I was telling the managers at Starbucks and at Panera Bread. uh, I was telling people that I would run into, uh, you know, on the street or had a chance to sit down and just chat with. I was I would tell them I'm close to getting my real estate license and they saw the enthusiasm. They said, hey, when you get your license, call me. They knew that I did not have experience in real estate, but I had people telling me, when you pass your exam, call me. I might let you help me sell my house, or I might let you help me buy my first house, or my next house. So there was a Starbucks manager, Leticia, in in, in North Sacramento, I passed the exam. And I walked into the Starbucks and I said, Leticia, I passed the exam. She said, great, now help me buy this house. So I had a listing and I had a buyer. So I started with Keller Williams and the, the, the trainer said, okay, Rick, we're gonna take you through this three or five day orientation with Keller Williams. And I said, okay, fine. But I said, I'm just gonna call her Helen. I said, Helen, I have a listing and I have a purchase did I need to get started right away? She goes, OK, well, we'll talk about it on break. I said, OK, fine. So the break came, nothing from Helen. The lunch came. I didn't hear anything from Helen. So by the third, the second break in the afternoon, I said, Helen, I thought you were going to you know, put me in touch with this guy named Bob. Bob is the person that has all the experience. I didn't have any experience, but I got the two deals. So Helen said, Rick. At this point, since you're new to real estate, you need to not worry about that listing and that buyer that you have. You really need to focus in on this training, this very important training that we have here at at Keller Williams. You know what? After she said that, I packed my shit and I left. Seriously, I hate to use strong language, but I did. It was almost like she was telling me that it wasn't important to be able to have a listing and a buyer as a brand new agent who just passed, you know, his exam about a week ago. A week ago. So I got my stuff and I left and I went to colwell Banker. I knew a broker at Cobell Banker, signed up with him. Something similar happened with him. There was no training. There was, you know, I had a deal. You know, some riff raff happened. I ended up getting only 30% of the deal, even though. The uh, person that wanted to buy a house selected me as their agent over this other agent that had, you know, four or five years' experience. And maybe, and May was the previous, and May was this uh, buyer's previous agent. The buyer said he didn't want to work with her. He he wanted to work with me. So I asked him three times. I said, Do you want to work with me? Do you really want to work with me? Are you sure you want to work with me? He goes, Yes, I want to work with you. So I got the paperwork started. Three days later. I lost a deal and accepted only 30% of the commission. So that's the reason why I started working with these 100% real estate brokers. And now I understand why so many real estate agents, you know, select 100% real estate brokers because it's 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 just less clutter, less uh, issues to deal with. Now again, the 100% real estate brokers don't. Uh, show the, the agents how to sell, but I can understand how 100% agents say, I'd rather get a hundred percent of my money, even though I'm not making any money than give 20% of my money to a broker where I'm not getting much from it. So the same things happen with independent insurance brokers, no sales training. Then I had uh, friends that I knew that were dentists and other people had, uh, other small business owners, they were having similar, similar issues uh, with, with selling and with marketing, they didn't have sales training. And you have to understand at this time, that's when the California economy was, was, a, was about to fall apart. I got my real estate license about 14 months before the real estate crash so i wasn't able to effectively sell real estate like others now i was good at finding buyers who wanted to buy new homes because that was just prospecting but the the traditional real estate duties and tasks that uh, most realtors knew about i didn't learn about those until later on so the point i'm trying to make is that In independent independent sales, I'm starting, I'm I'm stuttering a little bit, but this is a, uh, I'm not going to edit anything from this podcast. Independent sales has a big problem. Reps, sales reps, agents, people in independent sales organizations, and some that are nine to five employees working in sales are not receiving sales training. Okay, so that's the reason why I started 321 uh, Biz Dev LLC, sales training and business development services. So let me continue with the story about the epiphany. So while I was in financial services, I had stopped kind of you know doing real estate because that was kind of dead, in a sense. So I met these two guys. I met this one guy. His name was Harley Gordon. He was a Boston a state planning uh, attorney, and he, he gave this great presentation on how to sell long-term care. So I, I remember him saying something in his presentation that stuck with, stuck in my mind, and I said, aha, that looks like a sales system. The second guy was a former software engineer from San Francisco. He, had, he sold his his stocks in this uh, software company, and he started an insurance agency. And he hired me to work with him uh, down in San Francisco, uh, this guy and his wife. And he had a something that looked like a sales system. So um, the funny thing about it was, it was like a 40 page manual and it wasn't a complete sales system as it stood when he gave me the manual. But after I finished working with this company a year later, that book that he gave me, it sat on the shelf. It sat on the shelf. And at this time, California's economy was still in the dumps. A lot of people were not making money across the board in many different industries. So bad times, 2008. And now I'm getting closer to telling you about the epiphany. Bad times began in 2008. Family member significant illness. Because of the crash and the California economy at that time, I was totally unprepared for my the first and my second son to begin college. So I had family issues starting in 2011 with illnesses. I had uh, injuries to one of my sons. I had. You know, sons that went to college, you know, on fumes financially. I had to scrape up some money and they would have problems in college. Nothing serious, a lot to do with, you know, people losing their their homes and foreclosure. And my sons were renting, renting the the, the homes. and, And when the homes were foreclosed, they had to move out immediately. Then I had some personal issues in my own life. So I tell you what, from 2008, like 2014 it was bad times for your boy so after the smoke began to clear it was november 1st 2014 i was behind all the bad times at least the 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 immediate impact of a bad time so i was still you know uh suffering from (laughs) some lingering effects but november 1st 2014 i said to myself I'm gonna take that manual that Mark gave me, the San Francisco engineer, and I'm gonna figure out what in the hell went on with with selling since I left corporate America and being an independent sales for the last like 14 years. So this this moment of epiphany now take, so this moment of epiphany now begins to, to take shape. So the big question was, Why did I perform in a below average way in sales? Was it me? Did I lack desire? Was it because I was black? And on all three, the answer was hell no. It wasn't me. I did not lack desire. And it's not because I was black. Being black has never stopped me before. Working at the restaurant, working in the military, being in corporate America, you know, hanging out on the streets, Being a club dj in san francisco i was i was working in one of the top dance clubs in san francisco as a club dj my buddy and i you know puerto rican guy from the bronx we got this 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 part-time gig at this top san francisco hotel where we made two thousand dollars a night on friday night and saturday night both while being in the military i was the guy that that contacted the hotel manager while hanging out in San Francisco. And he said, by the way, we do have a three-month opening for someone who wants to, you know, be a a DJ in our club because our main guy is taking off. He has to do something. He won't be around. But you have to have skills and you have to be very professional because it costs $40 per person to get into this club. And it was in." It was a Knob Hill in San Francisco. It was on Powell Street in San Francisco. The street that has the 35% elevation incline. 35, I'm sorry, not 35%, 35 degree incline. So my buddy Dave Ramirez and I, we worked as club DJs in this upscale hotel in San Francisco and made $2,000. On Friday night, and two thousand dollars on Saturday night for three months. So, I, so that's what I'm saying. It what it, this had nothing to do to do with me. What it was is that the organizations that I work for did not have a sales system. So I am fuming mad that, that I found that I find out about this, you know, fourteen years later. So my question that I had November first, 2014 how would I make a comeback in business? So let me dig deep into the problem to identify it and fix it. So the epiphany was the following. I went back to the 40 page sales training manual I got from Mark. That's the former San Francisco software engineer. I remembered how smooth his system was to contact wealthy people in San Francisco, in the San Francisco Bay area. I'm talking about Black Hawk residents in Danville. I'm talking about the Oakland Hills where the uh, Oakland Athletics and the San Francisco 49ers stay. I'm talking about Pacific Heights in San Francisco. I'm talking about the, the Presidio where some of the California senators and, and uh, you know, richest politicians live. I'm talking about uh, Hillsboro, California, the area uh, called Hillsboro, California, per capita is the richest area in the country where the average you know wealth you know margin is at least 10 to 20 20 million dollars where people live i'm talking about people who work in silicon valley who who work in menlo park who work in mountain view who work in sunnyvale you know uh, who work in ben loman who commute from santa cruz california so i'm just saying marks System to contact these wealthy people. So even when even Mark's system did not take me where I wanted to go, Uh, I I identified some things that needed to be fixed. I failed on a big appointment where the uh, lady who lost her husband she was she needed a twenty thousand dollar a year annual premium insurance plan. I did not close that, and I know why I didn't close it. I did not have a sales system. Mark's training was good, but it was still missing something. It was missing something. So what Mark's sales training missed, and here's the epiphany. Here's the big epiphany of what I learned and how I learned from failure. This is the big epiphany. The epiphany is how consumers view salespeople and the entire psychology of consumer behavior when it comes to sales. That's it, that's the part that I was missing. I was missing, see, let me put it this way. Anytime you sell a product or service, 99.9% of the time, the company is always talking about the product. The company is always talking about how the salesperson needs to project a certain image they need to have their skills honed they need to be professional they need to dress sharp they need to have great grooming uh, they need to be experts at their product but damn it not one company ever talked about how consumers view salespeople they never did not one company talked about the psychology of consumer behavior when it comes to to looking at buying products and services. So I had to dig that up myself. I read hundreds of pages of articles written by top psychologists in the US and Canada and even some places, other countries, that talked about how consumers view salespeople. How consumers make decisions, how consumers are pissed off about salespeople. And the number one reason consumers are upset with most sales uh, appointments is consumers are not receiving a great sales experience. That's it. So the three things that set off this epiphany that opened my eyes up was how consumers viewed salespeople, the the psychology of consumer behavior, and the number three thing, salespeople do not give their potential clients a great sales experience. For most consumers, it feels like this. The salesperson is gonna win, and the consumer is gonna lose. So in that respect, consumers don't like chaos. Salespeople don't like chaos. The large majority of people, we, you know, you got to understand when you're in sales, they're friendly, if you are friendly. And I noticed when I was writing this, writing the uh, three-two-one sales manual, that most salespeople do not project a friendly attitude, and most salespeople are afraid to talk to people. So fear people s- stops most people from succeeding in sales. The next thing is that salespeople need to stop underestimating themselves and they need to stop overestimating others. So where race does appear in this epiphany is, I find that a lot of black people typically do not want to work in sales positions. And, and the reason why, and this is now this is a valid point, okay? Uh, it's, it's valid, at least from my perspective, because society says black people are not supposed to be good in sales. And I'm not saying I was told this because I never saw it, but I see it every day. I see it where, number one, there's not a lot of black people in sales. And number two, when we are in sales, we are seen as such an anomaly. Even today, you know, people look at what I do in my company, and I know because I've been told this. I've been told this by, by let me put it this way. I went to an appointment about 30 miles from from where I, I live in Sacramento. Before I went to the appointment, I called this lady and I said, "Hey, this is Rick." Um, I'm a, I'm a, I'm coming to see you about this particular insurance product. So the lady said, "Okay, okay." So I went to the lady's house, knocked on the door. She opened the door, and she goes, "Rick." I said, "Yes." You know, Martha. She goes, "Yes." So she let me in, and she goes, "On the phone, I thought you were a white guy." <laughs> so we laughed about it. Okay, she ended up buying the product. But it was that it was at that time that I felt, okay, man, there's not a lot of you know black males, not a lot of black females in sales, and it was the same that was true in corporate America. So I'm just I'm just saying that because in my business it's rare for people to do what I do, and it's also rare, in my humble opinion, to be effective in in sales training because. Based on what I'm hearing, you know, people like me are not supposed to be good in sales training. But, you know, nonetheless, we will keep it moving. So when I said sales positions, when I said sales positions, uh, people working in sales, I mean people taking action in the contacting, prospecting and closing negotiation of sales. So when, when a lot of people talk about selling, They look at sales, or they look at successful selling sometimes when the buyers are willing buyers. Okay, so working in sales, when someone already wants to buy. So now I'm referring to this thing called leads and primarily Zillow leads or any type of lead where you're buying the lead and the person already wants to buy. Okay, so that's not the definition of selling. Selling is when the salesperson has to have style, finesse, and a sales system to execute the contacting function, the prospecting function, and the closing negotiation function. So if you're in sales and you work in a retail store and a person walks in and says, Ralph, I wanna buy $5,000 computer, monitor, printer, the whole shebang, okay? That's not the formal definition of sales, even though you're interacting with customers and the customer's gonna buy. So I'm not putting down retail sales. I'm not putting down people who, who sell based on getting leads. I'm not putting that down. I'm just saying there's a big difference Between the two, there's a big difference between business development uh, services, you know, which is the component of creating uh, a relationship from scratch. See, I'm talking about the types of relationships and sales where let's say you live in St. Louis, Missouri, and for whatever reason, you're moving to Boston you're moving to Boston and you don't know anyone. So how will you develop new contacts and prospects in Metro Boston that has a population, I'm talking about the entire metropolitan area of Boston, it has a population of 4.7 million people. Well, you can if you have the formal sales training of, of how to contact people how to prospect people, how to successfully negotiate the clothes with people. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter where you move from and the new place that you're moving. If you've been in a new city for one day, you can start your business. You can create sales opportunities in your business. So finally, designing a sales system. When I, when I designed the sales system after I realized and experienced that epiphany, I took my corporate sales experience, which was very good. I looked at my independent sales experiences, which really had no structure. I read this book called The Path of Least Resistance, which I'm not even sure how I discovered this book. This book just fell in my lap. So then I started talking to business owners about their ups and downs with selling. My first um, successful uh, close with 321 was a 200 lot rural county home builder. My friend Brian, hey Brian, I know you, I'm gonna send this to you. You know, you you remember this, Brian Van Norman. He runs a, a high definition, uh, camera outfit down in the Central Valley in Fresno. So hey, hey Brian, um, the builder had 200 lots. The, the lots were all wired for, for sale. Only a few homes were up. This builder hired a broker. For one year, only two homes sold. So Brian and myself, we met with Virgil, who was the builder, who was a son of a builder, and Virgil said, I'm just having no luck with my broker and I need to find out what am I doing wrong? So Brian set up the appointment because Brian had the relationship with the builder because Brian at that time was working in solar systems. So Brian said, let me call this guy, Rick and maybe the three of us can meet. So I met with, uh, with uh, Virgil, Virgil's a millionaire. I mean, his father was a successful home builder. Uh, Virgil was like 65 you know and, and had built homes all throughout this northwestern section of um, the, the metro Sac- Sacramento region so I brought over this piece of paper it had 20 questions on it so you know I didn't know what to expect from Virgil all I knew was that my experiences from corporate America and all the jobs that I had uh, to that point always told me this, there is always a solution to a problem. So I figured I'd ask Virgil enough questions and maybe his answers would lead me to what the problem was. So I had these 20 questions. So I asked Virgil a lot about himself and I started asking questions about the project. And I got the question 10 and asked Virgil this, this question 10 and Virgil said, stop. So Brian looked at me. I looked at Brian and we kind of looked looked at each other and said, I wonder what happened. Virgil said, Rick, Brian, you guys have asked me more questions about my home building project than the stinking broker has in in, in, in a one whole year. So the broker who he had hired to sell 200 homes did not ask him any of these questions that I asked Virgil, the home builder. And Virgil said, I don't care what the other questions are. In fact, Rick, don't even ask me those other 10 questions. I'm gonna give you guys the business of helping me fix my my home builder project with these stinking 200 lots that I can't even sell. And these homes were going for about 400 to $450,000. And they were great like well-designed homes. I mean, this guy put a lot of effort into building these homes. So he wrote Brian a $5,000 check. He wrote me a $5,000 check. And we set out to find out what the problem was. And there were some clear problems. Some of the problems were marketing. Some of the problems were uh, where the, where the, the, the 200 lots were located. So we made some marketing and advertising recommendations. We called some large companies to let them know that these homes were where they were because otherwise people didn't know about it. So this guy fired the broker and we interviewed some other brokers. So he interviewed three different brokers and he hired a broker and, and then those 200 homes were sold. 600, I'm sorry, those 200 homes were sold six months later. So he gave us another bonus of $10,000 for helping him, you know, sell those homes. So that was, that was awesome. The the next thing I met with a farmer's insurance agent, and we talked about doing some sales training where the fee was $30,000. Unfortunately, it didn't go through because corporate farmers did not want 321 training uh, in their system even though the farmers franchise owner loved it he said rick your training and i'm i kid you not <laughs> i'll give you his number you can you can call him if you want to call me 833-321-3212 i'll give you the guy's name he said rick your training program is better than farmers Okay, so then I I trained some combined insurance agents. I also trained a small boutique brokerage. I trained several IMOs. I trained a PhD student who called me and said, Rick, I don't know how to sell, but my PhD is gonna put me in the position where I have to call all these CEOs for my robotics uh, paper and study where I have to interact with these agricultural CEOs. So she paid me a couple of thousand dollars to help her learn how how to sell. She went up to Seattle to an ag conference, came back flying colors. She loved it. She loved the sales training. She, she got a chance to connect with the people that she needed to connect with. So in closing, I discovered that 99% of white collar business owners never had sales training. I also discovered that no university or college in America teaches people how to sell. There's no sales education formally available for dentists, for attorneys, for cosmetic surgeons, for real estate brokers, for insurance brokers. There is no formal sales training that's available for the typical salesperson that's working in independent sales so i want to thank you this was a small version of the, the, the short story of my epiphany that led me to become the ceo of 321 BizDev llc if a podcast listener wants to schedule a 30-minute confidential consultation to discuss a specific sales challenge or, the need, or they need to start the process to sell effectively, please call me at 833-321-3212. You have listened to the 321 Biz Development Podcast. 321 Biz Dev LLC is a business development and sales industry think tank. Our business is people, our product is sales performance. 321 is the only company with sales systems for white collar professionals, who did not have access to affordable sales and business development training in college or through certification programs. Our website is 321bizdev.com, powered by sitemarket.com. This podcast is powered by Jive Communications at jive.com. We can be reached toll-free in the U.S. and Canada at 833-321-3212. We hope you enjoyed this podcast about the epiphany and will you respond when yours arrives? Make it a great day.